Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How do you determine like who's a fraud? You look at the gap between their marketing and what's actually presented. And then I think the third element is you have to think about how you are emotionally processing it if you are invested in it as a stockholder or an advisor, you know, whatever your role is to make sure that you're not uh, tricking yourself as well. All right, welcome back, Look Up listeners, to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I am your host, Mark Weinstein. As always, thank you for listening along. Thank you for following the show. I hope you've been enjoying the latest slate of episodes that we have been sharing with you all these days. Okay, so it is March 31st, 2020. And on this episode of Look Up, I had the opportunity to chat with my friend Gabrielle Bluestone. I first met Gabrielle through the Fire Festival shenanigans. She was also featured in the documentary. She was a vice reporter that was writing about the festival and following along as the whole thing was kind of falling apart. She actually interviewed me about this in her book, which is what we were discussing on this show. So her book is called Hype and it comes out probably along with this episode in one week from the recording of this episode. So I'm super excited for her. And the subtitle of the book is How Scammers, Grifters, and Con Artists Are Taking Over the Internet and Why We're Following. And of course, these are subjects that you listeners know are near and dear to my heart. We talk about fake it till you make it culture, the cult of the charismatic entrepreneur. We talk about influencers and specific stories about them copying other people's work and why they're still followed. We talk about the haves and the have nots and celebrity influence during COVID times. Uh, we get a little bit into the media landscape and um, whether or not we think that socialism is the solution to our latest woes or if it's a need for, as Gabrielle says, a shift in values. But it was a really fun conversation to record. I think it's uh, more natural for, for Gabrielle to be asking the questions and for me to be answering them. But uh, we we had a lot of fun and I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right. Have a good one. See you all soon. Gabrielle, welcome to Look Up Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is a very exciting day. So the book is called Hype, and we definitely live in a hype culture these days, as you and I have discussed over the years. I was telling Gabrielle for listeners ahead of the show that this is a unique one because Gabrielle interviewed me for the book. I was one of the people featured in, in the story, but now I have the opportunity to interview the author. So I get to turn it around and it's going to be, this is going to be fun. But I guess, you know, just kind of for starters, like why did you decide to write this book? That's a great question. First of all, because this topic has been covered in such detail, right, between the two documentaries and all the news coverage. But I realized that there was still a lot 
about the behind the scenes and kind of why the scam worked so well that hadn't been covered as much. Like we definitely know everything Billy did. But I was curious kind of what made it so effective and why so many kids who, you know, are very internet savvy, like have all the tools to uncover things like this, just didn't. And I kind of realized that the more important part of the story is like why these scams are working and why we keep falling for them, even though we know better. And so that kind of formed the basis for this book, which got me looking at all the different industries and attitudes that kind of got us here, including social media and FOMO and, you know, the charismatic founder and cult of founder and all of that. So... Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, I mean, what did you find? Like, why do we keep falling for these cons? <laughs> well, so I thought it would be kind of a scientific answer, but the answer I think is very emotional. Like we fall for it because we want to. Either they're promising us something that we want or they're making it seem, you know, we see other people want it and we want it because other people want it or we see the right people advertising the product. But it really all comes down to like our own emotions. Yeah. And follow up to that, like, is this something that has been happening forever? And it's just now we're more aware of it because of technology. I think so. There was a story from, you know, 500 years ago, or let me actually look up when it was. There's a, yeah, an fine. old story. Basically, there's a fire festival story that happened once hundreds of years ago. So this is actually in the either late 1700s or early 1800s. Gregor McGregor sold bank bonds to a country that didn't exist uh, and then sent two boats <laughs> worth of Scottish settlers there. And, you know, this was 300 years ago. If I'm doing my math correctly, I'm a writer, not a, <laughs> not a mathematician. <laughs> it but, sounds you know, about right. That instinct on both sides has been there forever. But I think that technology has really accelerated it, that being able to see what other people are doing and how they're living and how they're presenting themselves so immediately has really activated, like made it much worse. Yeah. And, and was that one of the most surprising findings to you that... You know, we're still, was that surprising to you at all? Or was that something you would have expected? Yes and no. Well, I guess what I found and personally shocking was just, you know, even though I'm writing about this and thinking about this all the time, I still fall for things that I see on social media. I'm still shocked when it turns out that somebody was lying about something or, you know, that's not what they really look like in real life. So there's like, I guess you want to, you want to trust people. You want to believe people, even though you know, this is going on. So I found that surprising. Do you think that it's in the end, even though there's grift and lies and, and cons to your point about wanting to continue to believe this being emotional, do you think that it's just generally healthier or leads to better outcomes to just inherently trust rather than to dis than to mistrust others? Yes, but there there also has to be a healthy cynicism there. You know, you have to be able to see some evidence of what you're believing in. And the interesting part of the discussion, I think, comes, like we've talked about, how do you know that a founder is real when they aren't expected to show anything yet? There are those moments where it's not as clear. I think probably emotionally, it's better to continue to trust and not assume that everyone is going to try to scam you, but it's healthy to remember in the back of your head that they might. You know, we talked... We talked a lot about kind of like the charismatic founder that has achieved success mm -hmm. versus the con artist 
who kind of gets exposed for a fraud and to the point about, you know, trusting versus not like the former is a feel often a feel good story of a founder that faked it until he or she made it and then created success out of nothing. And the latter is like these, these horror stories like fire and, you know, Theranos in your kind of research and conversations, did you find any key differences between the charismatic, successful CEO and the con artist founder? Yeah, I think it comes down to what they can actually show for their work at the end of it, right? Like what what Billy and Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman, even what they all have in common, I think is that they made these promises and then were never able to back them up. You know, no one ever saw the blood test in action. No one could ever verify that these things were real. Billy was promising that he was getting funded from places, but had never actually like never showed, you know, that the money was actually coming in. And I think it's just like looking for evidence that backs up what they're saying. So you want to trust them, but if they're making these claims and and you never see anything to back it up or the things that you see are questionable, you know, I, I think it's just weighing constantly what you can see versus what you're promised. Yeah. I mean, I hear you in, in losing your train of thought because it's, it's complex, right? Like uh, in a lot of ways, it feels like it's outcome driven, mm-hmm. right? Like I think you, you reference Elon Musk in the book a few times and like, you know, Musk is one of these characters that has constantly been called out for hyperbolic or, you know, even f- by some as being a fraud. And yet you know, I guess the proof that he's not is that there are rockets that have taken off and landed, you know, for the first time in, in ever, um, at least for humanity. And so is it entirely outcome oriented? Like had had fire ended up, you know, hosting people and moving through the motions of like a full blown festival, even if it were, you know, subpar, would Billy then have not been a con artist? So this is a question I love because you and I have actually talked a little bit about this, which is I truly believe that if they had managed to pull off a semblance of a festival, right, if some some of the musical acts had performed, if it had been a little bit more developed, that people absolutely would have pretended to have had the time of their lives because they were invested in it. They purchased the ticket. They traveled. They were expecting this experience. But I think people would have walked away believing that, like, okay, maybe it wasn't the best thing, but that was great. Like, it would have been a totally different reception and it wouldn't have taken that much to get there. So, so then I guess in a way it's just, it's just purely outcomes based, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you determine like who's a fraud? You look at the gap between their marketing and what's actually presented. And then I think the third element is you have to think about how you are emotionally processing it. If you are invested in it as a stockholder or an advisor, you know, whatever your role is to make sure that you're not, uh, tricking yourself as well. Yeah, I guess like for me, it's it's challenging because having been on the ground and knowing kind of what I know about fire and what we've spoken about in the past, like, you know, we were probably like a week out from that festival that, you know, logistically would have delivered on something, right? And knowing that there were people that were there that wanted to stay the whole weekend that were having fun and there were musical acts that performed on um, at least that first night, like, it was very close, but the thing is, I think Billy still would have been Billy, you know, in that, in that time, like he still, he still would have defrauded investors with, you know, false numbers and he still would have had sent 
fake wire confirmations and things like that. So from my perspective, like the outcome doesn't necessarily determine whether or not someone is um, is a con artist, but maybe whether or not they get caught. Yeah, I think that's a really good like, clarification there. I think I said this before, but I think it's really the gap between what they promise and what they deliver. And then you can look at the reasons why, you know, maybe they you know, they had eyes bigger than their stomach kind of thing, or, mm. or maybe they were using all the money to have boys trips down to the Bahamas. Um, you know, you can figure out why it went wrong, but just by looking at that gap, and I think companies get away with this a lot, right? Like you see it with, in, in social justice where companies are declaring that they are, oh. you know, aligned with oh whatever thinking, but then the makeup of the company does not match what their mission statement is or what they're promising. You know, Elon Musk has this self-driving car that you need to be an active driver on. Like what is described is often not what the actual product is. Yeah, absolutely. And and companies do get away with this stuff. The social justice piece that you mentioned is just like, uh, it makes me so nauseous to see like a corporation kind of planting their flag when it's just so not ingrained with the values that they actually practice. I want to kind of pivot the conversation because you said like, we're all, you know, susceptible to this, even you who have done, you know, countless hours of research on this subject and interviewed dozens of people, maybe more about hype, you know, you want to believe, but like, how can we as individuals protect ourselves from bullshit on the internet? I think the first step is being aware of what triggers an emotional response in you. So what content are you seeing that makes you feel a certain way or inspires you to act a certain way? You know, if you're seeing a bunch of models having a lot of fun and that makes you want to buy a ticket, like interrogate, whether that's actually what you're buying, you know, like does the marketing match the product? Look at the reviews. There's, you know, people live at the reviews. There's a portion of the book about a company that actually taught its employees how to use a VPN and sign on and leave fake reviews touting the product. But a lot of places give you the tool to look at, you know, verified purchasers or look at all the worst reviews first and then ask yourself if this is the worst case scenario, like, would I be okay with it? You know, the internet is your friend. Just as much as it can, like, inspire you to act, it can also reveal what it is you're actually looking at. Yeah, absolutely. So in short, kind of do one layer further of research Mm -hmm. than just kind of like taking things at face value. Yeah, treat it like you're uh, trying to figure out who someone is on social media, you know, like dig a little bit deeper. (laughs) (laughs) And um, to that point, you did have some interesting characters in in the book. One of them is We Were What, who is someone that people try to figure out on social media. I thought that it was, you know, her story and kind of the way that she has been accused of copying other, you know, other fashion brands and basically claiming the products as her own was interesting. Can you share a bit more about Danielle and this story? Sure. Yeah. So she's a a very popular, very famous influencer who has parlayed the interest in her online into a number of standalone brands, you know, partnerships with massive corporations like Macy's and I think it's Macy's, you know, she has a lot of business has come out of just being popular on social media. And it turns out that I think dating back a couple years, dating back to a jewelry collection that she had, a number of small brands have come forward to say that they shared products with her in the hopes that she would post it on social media, which is a great boost for their brand. But that instead, she basically copied their item and then 
released it on one of her brands. It's happened enough times that you kind of have to question. She's been accused of stealing a mask design, multiple dresses, you know, the packaging design, like a Tease-inspired print. And she's denied it, but, you know, you look at the side-by-side and it's it's hard to... Hard not to see the similarities um, and the similar MO. But the reason that, you know, start reached out to Danielle and started speaking with her was that she had been approached to do the fire festival and said that she had seen right through it and declined. And so before I really knew anything about her, I was just curious as an influencer, what had made her turn down something that so many other influencers had done. And she had, you know, a, an interesting answer about, you know, how she chooses who she partners with and that kind of thing. It turns out she had actually been on the list for comped tickets. She wasn't advertising it, but she did plan on attending. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I guess with, with We Were What, you know, my question is like, why, why do you think that people are still following her and purchasing her items? That's a good question. I think part of it is the familiarity. People have been following her for years. They feel like they know her. They feel like they're part of her life. She shares, you know, not just product advertisements, but clips of her own personal life. So, you know, she tells you what her apartment looks like and where she got her furniture from and where she and her boyfriend are traveling and how they rented their house. She really invites you to be a part of her life. And so I think the people that continue to be fans of hers are fans because they feel as though they're friends. And that comes back to that emotional connection again. Yeah. That emotional connection. And, and does it speak to, cause I had a, a philosophical question that I left in here f- for you, which is kind of like, do you believe in an objective truth? You know, it kind of comes back for me to like the different realities that we all live in. You know, some people believe that this person is a monster and other people believe that she is, you know, an icon. And it seems like we always have that when it comes to fame, mm-hmm. right? And celebrity. So I don't know, like, what's, what's your thoughts on this bifurcation of opinions about people in the public sphere and trying to identify what is true and what is not? Well, first of all, I don't think that being an icon and a monster are necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. But yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if I know the answer, but, you know, I think it's that familiarity thing. You feel as though you know this person, you can assign, you know, you, you project a little bit onto them because they aren't real in the sense that you actually know them. You know the the image that they're putting forth. I don't know if there's any objective truth. You know, I I don't practice, but I am like a lawyer. So I try to think about things in terms of facts and what is demonstrably provable. And so you can, tr- you know, try to be analytic like that. But as I mentioned, I, I continue to find myself falling for things or buying into the hype. And we'll be realizing later, like, what was I thinking? What was the last kind of hype driven thing that you fell for that you were like, oh, how did I fall for that? Um... I want to think of a better answer for you, but like an obvious one is buying things off Instagram. You know, the product rarely looks like <laughs> what you ordered. And and I continually, you know, hope springs eternal. I'm like, maybe this time it's going to be what the picture looks like and it never is. But I'll try to think of a better example no, that's, for that. That's a good one. Working with Danielle was an example of that. Um, when I approached her, it was to be kind of an expert voice in the book. And I, you know, quickly realized like once we did the podcast, she 
completely pulled out of the agreement. I never got to interview her. And then all of these stories came out and I was like, oh, okay. I fell for that hype as well. And has she come out since the book came out to, to speak about her um, representation in hype? Um, no, the book is not out until next week. And I have no idea whether she's seen it or not. Oh, interesting. I'm curious to to follow that story and see how, how it comes out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for one was definitely like, you know, um, nervous about speaking these things because it's been so long since the Fire Festival documentary and even since the Fire Festival itself is like 40 years now. So it's just like, oh man, this stuff keeps coming out. But I guess it's, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale for folks to think through like and potentially protect themselves in the future. Um, yeah, it's absolutely wild. I mean, are we, I guess one piece of your book that I thought was pretty cool was kind of this reference of COVID. You know, like here we are, like we're almost exactly one year after quarantine started and all these stories started coming out in, you know, in the beginning of COVID of kind of celebrities that were escaping to their getaway homes in the Hamptons and other places and, you know, talking about how it wasn't so bad to quarantine, but then there were images of them, you know, sitting in a mansion while others were struggling to have their jobs. I mean, how are these tied together? Right. Like what is kind of the the uniting force between that story and say something like Fire Festival or We Were What? Well, part of it, I mean, to address the first part of it, you know, a phrase that I heard going around that I thought really described it well was that for a while people were trying to say we're all on the same boat, you know, in this pandemic. And that the accurate description was not that we're all in the same boat, we're all in the same storm. And some people are in storm ready boats mm-hmm. and some people are in leaky canoes and to pretend that it's and equal experiences on its face, mm. you know, wrong. I think it stripped away some of the artifice. You know, the pandemic kind of made us all think about what we have and not what we don't have um, and what's really important. Although I have to say one of the most surprising and illuminating experiences for me in New York was maybe a week or two after it became very clear that the pandemic was here and that things were bad, but New York had not officially shut down yet. I happened to walk by the Supreme store downtown and there were like dozens of people lined up without masks on, ready to risk it all just to get, you know, this stupid t-shirt. And I apologize to any Supreme fans, but <laughs> not worth risking your they life over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, you know, it's on discussion, like how we assign this value and, and cultural cachet and that kind of thing. But to talk, and these were adults, you know, trying to buy for their kids. They want their kids to think they're cool. And so talking to these people online seemed really eye-opening in terms of, you know, what, what you're willing to risk. Yeah. When, when all the celebrities did the Imagine video, a comment that I found really revealing was Jamie Dornan explained that what had gone wrong wasn't that the celebrities were getting together, trying to entertain people, but rather that they had flaunted their nice homes or that they, you know, had outdoor space or whatever. And, and Jamie said that he did it in his bathroom because he knew that that was like a low key backdrop that wouldn't upset anyone. And so I think that comes back also to what we were talking about with brands, you know, trying to emphasize a, a social value that they don't really espouse in their in their business practices. And, and people are starting to see through that gap. It's so funny because it's like the irony of that statement is that he was trying to hide the truth mm-hmm. about where he was while kind of 
sharing like a broader message that people should listen to. Whereas the people that actually just showed the truth and didn't really think twice about it because maybe they're like, I, you know, I deserve to live in this house because I worked my butt off for it. And, you know, I, I, I'm not ashamed of, of having a fancy place to escape to, you know, we're kind of like burnt down. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember, um, JLo's house looked exactly like the parasite house and the comparison between the two of them were wild for a little while. Yeah, I saw that in the book, but I didn't actually, uh, I didn't follow like all the J-Lo, A-Rod stuff in relation to Parasite. But I think Parasite and kind of this COVID stuff is, you know, a representation of a, a, a deeper problem, which is more like this economic uh, inequality that we have, wealth inequality. And it's not to say that I believe as an individual that everyone should have the same exact amount. Because like, if you ever read Raymond Bradbury had a book I think it was called Algernon Holmes, maybe, but I have to actually look it up. But like where everybody was meant to be equal and like so exceptional people were actually just, you know, if you were super strong, they'd put weights on your body. If you were too pretty, they'd put a mask on your face. Right. And like there's that kind of perversion around like trying to make everything equal. But, you know, when inequality of opportunity gets so, so wide and like you can just kind of feel it, something is going to give. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like COVID highlighted that. I feel like, you know, influencers highlight that. I feel like fire highlights that. It's almost like this undertone of your, of, of your writing is, is identifying a deeper problem, which is, you know, we're in this kind of weird place where there's voyeurs and exhibitionists and like there's haves and have nots, but it feels like it's, it's almost that gap is wider than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you put that really well. First of all, I just want to say my, you know, my personal thought is that no one really needs more than a billion dollars. You know, that seems like a good number, but that's, <laughs> that's my own personal opinion. But, you know, you look at the wealth transfer during this pandemic and it's almost exactly equal to what, what, what the lowest, you know, income people have lost is almost exactly equal to what the billionaires have gained. So obviously something is, is terribly wrong. You know, we can save our critique of capitalism for another day. But I do think that fake it till you make it, you know, attitude that is, you know, so prized in the tech world, in the startup world, also extends to our own personal lives, right? Like people are desperately faking it on Instagram. You know, we're not just catfishing our friends, we're catfishing ourselves, like between the filters and, you know, the conspicuous consumption, whether it's really happening or not. I don't know. Everyone's like hurtling towards this, this like a lifestyle that no one's really living. I think that's one of the reasons that fire festival was so popular with people was it seemed like Billy was presenting, you know, ran, you know, the regular Instagram users with a chance to live like the people they were following. Um, And that's why it struck so deeply that sense of FOMO. Why do you why do you think that we are catfishing ourselves? Not why do you think why are we catfishing ourselves? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know if I have like a perfect answer to it. I think I think social media changed everything to a certain degree. There are a lot of studies that show the influence that having all of this stuff in your pocket even the difference between when Facebook was only a desktop site between when it became an app 
and you know the advent of Instagram, being on your phone all the time, you're constantly seeing how other people are living. And I think it's very difficult not to compare yourself to that. In, in the course of your work, did you speak to anyone that offered kind of an optimistic view of where we're going in relation to all of these issues? Not in how it's affecting us personally. Certainly, you know, influencer marketing is becoming more regulated. Companies are getting better at weeding out who's real and who's not. So that's getting more and more refined. But I think in terms of the way that we personally receive that information as a consumer, there's no easy or neat solution to that other than, you know, deleting the app. I do have to say in this pandemic, I unfollowed like pretty much every big influencer that I had followed. And I just started following accounts that made me feel like happy or interested. You know, I, I, (laughs) I follow this account that's just like a guy cooking in the woods and it's these like slow videos of him making a fire and, you know, frying donuts in a mossy area. It's like beautiful and relaxing. And I had no idea that social media could be like that. You hear people joke around about how Instagram or Twitter is such a health site it is that way because of the people that you've chosen to follow. So you can control what you're seeing. Yeah. So are, are we, you know, as consumers responsible for the outcomes that are being created right now? Are we partially responsible? Are we fully responsible? Can we collectively change the game? I think we are partially responsible. There's no doubt that you know, people are trying to trick you all the time. You can't stop that from happening. And you can't stop your innate emotional response, but you can try to think critically about it, I think, and and try to be aware of how you're letting the media that you're seeing affect you. Can we collectively change the game through individual behavior changes? Yeah. You know, I saw a great TikTok. I'm not going to take credit for the statement, but it was right after GameStop. And this woman was saying, you know, you saw how you can affect hedge funds and how you can change, you know, the value of things very easily. You can apply that to social media as well. The Kardashians would have absolutely no power if everyone just unfollowed them. All you need to do to take away their power is unfollow. And that's, you know, that's not 100% true, but it's certainly, you know, she makes a very good point. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to think about collective action in the form of social media use and how even that, like, you know, whenever you try it, whenever you see collective action movements moving through social media, they, they almost take on the lens of that platform as you, you know, discuss kind of brands taking on social justice causes, right? And like, then it's just like, oh man, again, like nothing is sacred, nothing is safe from the manipulation of the platform. So I could just imagine a situation where like, you know, 500,000 to a million people unfollow the Kardashians or like, you know, 5 million people. And then it becomes like a victim story of, you know, a rebirth story or, you know, an I'm sorry story or whatever. It's just, it's just uh, the media machine is so resilient in the way that it kind of reshapes narratives Well, you know, this is something that we've absolutely been seeing going on, you know, think back to the 90s when people found out that Nike was using sweatshops and and how really how much that's really changed today and how much of it is just marketing. But I think the difference is for people like the Kardashians, their um, value is not, you know, their stocks or their companies, but the eyeballs that are on them. Like we are their value. 
So you, mm. I think it's interesting that you can affect it in that way because it, it, their audience is what they're selling to the advertisers. They're kind of the go-between. As you're embarking on this book tour and you've kind of just written, you know, a piece of media, right? Essentially, like, how do you think about your responsibility as a journalist in weaving a story that is objective, but also that, you know, that gets eyeballs, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a business of attention gathering. Mm -hmm. And I think about this in, in, in the context of look up all the time, you know, speaking about social media on a platform and then, and then posting it on social media to get people to listen to it. Mm -hmm. Cause I obviously want people to listen to it. Right. So how do you navigate that? That's a great question. So I, I never actually got around to executing it, but I really wanted to promote this book by buying a bunch of cameos from celebrities and then using those as, you know, straightforward endorsements because it is actually that easy. Cameo has a business section where you can, you can buy basically their, their product endorsements. Uh, so they've eliminated the middleman on that. Never actually got around to doing that, which is probably for the best. That was a great, it's a great idea. I actually think you should do it. <laughs> well, I have a week, so if you see it come out, but I don't know. I've, I've tried to be really conscious of that. Yeah. I don't know. Cause you have well, to promote it. Like you have to do the press and, you know, talk it up. And this book got sent out, you know, to influencers and with the, with the hope that they'll post it on social media. And, you know, my whole book is castigating that. So, you, you know, I think about it. I, I hope that anyone that posts it only posts it because they liked it. And that's the only reason that yeah. um, it is. It is an interesting line. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, when you work in media, when you are a creator, you want your work to be seen. I mean, I see it now with kind of like this NFT space, watching, you know, watching artists kind of like trip over themselves to get in line to sell, you know, work. It just all feels very late stage capitalism to me. It's a free for all, you know, like, have you seen the movie I Care A Lot? Not yet. I really want to. Oh, it's so good. I wrote about it in one of the newsletters recently, but it's just a representation of like the lengths that we will go to, to win the game when the rules of the game are simply to maximize wealth and, you know, really at any cost by any means necessary, you know, we all are in a way a product of the system that we exist in. Right. And so like you write books, you want to sell books. <laughs> that's just, that's just the nature of the game. What, um, Assuming this book gets into like, you know, millions and millions of hands, like what is, what's one takeaway that you want uh, your readers to walk away with? I think just to really think critically about how we are processing the information that we're seeing on the internet and what we're taking as fact. You know, there's such a, a, watching what happened with QAnon and watching the divergence of opinion over whether science is real or whether vaccines can be trusted. You know, how did we get here? What it's not even that people, so one of the things I thought really, sorry, I'm losing, losing the thread here. One of the things that I thought. No, was, you're not. Was, just go, just go with it. I want really, to hear, I want to hear you go off. Um, Let's do it. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting in, in terms of how we got so divided politically is, is people don't understand that we're not even reading the same articles or the same news, like, like what people are worried about on both sides is so divergent. Like there's just no rational connection between the two. There's like these, and, and that's algorithm based, I think is a, a major problem. Like it's not just that we disagree on the news. We're not reading the same news. So we got to find a way back to 
you know, critical thinking and facts. I don't know. It really concerns me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a concerning time. And, and that's why I was asking about objective truth, because then you have a scenario where there's data and the data is being displayed in any way that you know, that can weave the narrative that the user of that data wants to weave. So, you know, even facts are taken and manipulated and politicized. It's alarming. It's frightening to think how easy it is for us to be manipulated. You know, when you, when you, st one starts reading about human psychology and our cognitive biases, it's just like, oh, wow, like we really are you know, we really are malleable. So I, I, I think, you know, if, if there is a takeaway from this episode, for sure, it's like, hey, you need to, you know, listeners like really take that next step when you're fed information, check the source, mm -hmm. you know, check another source. If you're listening to Fox News, you know, go listen to ABC. If you're listening to ABC, NBC all the time or MSNBC and you know, Rachel Maddow, go listen and Bill Maher on HBO, go listen to, uh, you know, <laughs> Hannity. <or somebody. laughs> like you kind of got to get the balanced view, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and also pay yeah. attention to whether what you're listening to is opinion or news or fact, you know, it's not always clearly delineated, but I, you know, I, I personally can't really tolerate any cable news, no matter what way it, it means, because it's, it's just people, you know, spouting off. Yes. A lot of fear and a lot of opinion. And while I appreciate other people's opinion, like I, you know, <laughs> I don't need to be constantly hearing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this conversation with my parents all the time to turn off, you know, to turn off the news. Mm -hmm. But we all live in our little echo chambers of media these days. It's like, it's absolutely wild. I don't know how we can put the genie back in the bottle at this point. I think we kind of just are where we are. And human evolution has not caught up with, with media evolution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's it's been shocking in COVID to see how people react to that, the people that don't believe it's real or refuse to wear masks. You know, I live in New York city. I live in an apartment building. Um, and there's a man in my building who has never worn a mask. Like since the start of it, absolutely refuses to do it. And I just can't understand. Like, I don't mm. you know. How do you get there? Yeah. But then you see data out of Texas and it's like, since they stopped, you know, stopped having mask wearing be mandatory cases have actually decreased probably not as a cause of, no mask wearing, but, you know, showing that in some instances, at least within N equals one, that mask wearing is a lack of masks is not correlated to an increase in cases. Mm -hmm. And that's like, okay, but where's that data coming from? Right? And, yeah. And, and then also a lot of places in Texas, they, they're kind of given the option. So a lot of places still are mask mandatory, even though there's not a, a state uh, mandate for it. So yeah, it's, it's really hard to tell as someone who's not on the ground seeing the evidence, right? You're, you're seeing it through the internet and you kind of have to, again, critically think. And Have you reflected back on kind of where you were at a year ago, like when COVID launched at all? Launched when COVID like, <laughs> when, when COVID, COVID launched into our consciousness. Yeah. The, the COVID drop. Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, have you have you reflected towards that time and like how you were feeling or or what you were thinking? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely need a little more time to to have a, a lucid conclusion about it. Um, but certainly, I feel like back then it was, it was there was so much unknown. That was what was terrifying. You didn't know how you could get it. I remember for a while I was wearing gloves at the grocery store, but not a mask, right? So that part was scary. And then once we started to understand better what it was and how it communicated, you know, you could figure out how to live within the confines, but it's not having the information that was really terrifying. So, you know, to be now and to know the rules and although, I mean, you know, am I allowed to ask you, like you recently recovered from it, like, were you surprised? Yeah, you can ask. Yeah. I'm not embarrassed that I had COVID. <laughs> I don't want to like bring good. up your medical information if you don't want to talk about it. No, but, you know, it's all good. Um, you know, to get it this late in the game, I'm curious, like, were you shocked? Were you surprised? Like, what was that experience like? So I thought that I had it already in November because I tested positive with a PCR before going to my parents for Thanksgiving. And I ended up staying in for 10 days with, you know, what I thought were mild symptoms, but like were possibly just psychosomaticized. <laughs> and, um, you know, I am a neurotic Jew after all. I can't <laughs> help it. And and so I was like not super, you know, as careful. I was a little like, I got it already, whatever. And then, you know, I got it the second time. I was like, oh, this is really, you know, this is really it. There is a campaign of fear. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't believe that COVID is real. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that the vaccine can work or will work. It just means that I believe that people are more valuable. And this is actually not even me. This is like Tristan Harris talking about social media platforms, but like people are more valuable, afraid, disconnected, angry, greedy. Those mind states just work better for an attention economy. And so I just constantly am questioning any narrative that is promoting more mistrust, more fear, more anger, more hate, more greed. I like imagine if the news were boring. I would love that. Like sign me up for that yeah. channel. Yeah, but guess what? Like it's gotten more boring since Biden and I think that they'll want to bring Trump back in some way shape or form slash like they love bringing him up because it's it sells. Mm-hmm ads, you know, because it gets eyeballs. I do have to say, once you got booted off Twitter, like consuming the news became incredibly less chaotic and stressful. That that did make a huge difference. Yeah, exactly. And and the question is like in a in a business that is driven by eyeballs, you know, is that a good thing? And I just look for I think it's Charlie Munger who's like who says to look for the show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Mm-hmm. I think that's the the saying, you know, we can look that up for the show notes, but you know, that's just kind of where I'm at right now. Like in a world where there's a lot of different narratives, we're talking about hype, right? And I think hype can be promotional, but it can also be, you know, to build kind of awareness or maybe a hyper awareness of, you know, certain situations like the Suez Canal thing. Here's another example oh, this is never going to get unstuck. It's going to destroy global trade. Look at this. And then it's like, you know, and then it's it's unstuck a week later. And it's like, oh, okay, now what's the next news story? Thank God we got the memes of the guy in the, in, in the, um, you know, whatever, oh, with the, the forklift, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the forklift, like moving mountains, you know, like that's what I love about media is like the way that these memes emerge. Mm-hmm. But 
I don't know. See, that's funny I, because I, I liked that story because it was so low stakes. That's the way I encountered it, right? Like it was just a funny, like, ha look at the big boat stuck in the little canal. Like, like that was, that was amusing to me, at least, you know, in the beginning, people took it a little too far. Um, but I think that's funny the way that the different ways that we're encountering this news and the different way you consume it. Like you're much yeah, more absolutely. business minded. So you're reading the stories that are like, here's how it's going to disrupt the global supply chain. And I'm seeing the stupidest memes on Twitter. <laughs> no, and I love, I love the memes, you know, I'm, I'm here for them. But it is, it is kind of like, I don't know. I would just love to see, like, I want, I, I want, I want your next book to be like, this is what's next. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is how, you know, this is how we're going to, kind of evolve beyond this current state. Like, I think you've captured the state of affairs as they are and highlighted many of the problems that we're collectively facing with regards to social media and con artists and influencers and all this and packaged it really well. And now it's like, all right, what's next? Mm -hmm. How can we, how can we move beyond this? Are we just fucked? You know, <laughs> Well, you know, part of my job is to ask the experts. And I am curious what you, as someone who has a much better sense of, you know, the bit, I think you think really interestingly about the human side of it, but also the business side. Like, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I talk about it here often. Like, I think it's, again, it's about incentives. We need to realign incentives and we need to improve value capture. So like, if I can exist in a system where I can socialize the costs and maximize and privatize the profits, then I'm consistently going to do that. I'm going to behave in that way. If the name of the game for a young man is, you know, your success is tied to your net worth and your wealth and how much money you make, then men are going to play that. Young men are going to grow up to be men that are childishly playing that game and think of nothing else. I question like if it's structure, if it's cultural, if it's structurally economic, if it's all of the above, if it runs deeper than that. I'm not so certain. Of course, no one's so certain about how to solve these broad, these kind of like big high level problems. I'm but. telling you, cap everyone's net worth at a billion. That's it. You can go up to a billion. Yeah, but like that's. I mean, you said that earlier, and I'm like, okay, that's true. Like a billion dollars, who needs it? But then again, like who needs a hundred million, right? And then it's like, well, who needs ten million? And so, you know, where do you stop? And then. Where do you take the excess? So let's say that like the U.S. government was like, hey, Jeff Bezos shouldn't be worth a trillion dollars. We're going to take everything above a billion because that's all he needs. Okay. Who's going to reallocate those dollars? Who's going to be watching them reallocate those dollars? Who's going to decide where those dollars go? You know, and like, I just think we come to this, this problem where it's, it's the slippery slope of reallocation of resource oftentimes ends up getting the value capture at the choke point of the people that are deciding how to reallocate those resources. So like in our inst in our case in DC, right, with the federal government, people that are lifetime politicians that are self-serving and basically are going to determine where that money goes. Oh, and by the way, are funded by special interest groups who are going to help them determine where that money goes. Right. So for me, like I'm actually more of a capitalist. And then I am kind of a socialist in terms of wealth redistribution, but I don't believe that it's either or on capitalism and socialism. And I've been talking a lot 
this is because I think we're more we're, we're going back to like our more natural kind of state where you're like you're asking the questions and I'm like oh I'll give you an answer to that I'd love to do that well played but the point I was trying to make is I actually don't think that those are opposite ends of the spectrum but I think we need to accept as as humanity that we can move to a system that is better than capitalism that is better than socialism as we know it and potentially this is technology driven but it might just be cult- something culturally new or um you know I, I think we can do better i really do i just I, I i don't think the solution is like everybody should be capped at a billion dollars because then i think what happens is we end up with a redistribution problem yeah i think we already have a distribution problem like there's enough food for no one to starve and people are starving right like that that's not a resource problem. That's a distribution problem. And it's shitty. Yeah. In many cases, it's more economical for cities and states to put homeless people in hotel rooms. But instead, you see, I think it was in Arizona, like the spaced out outdoor living that they're doing for people. Like A lot of it makes no sense. I do agree with you that values, it, it absolutely comes down to values and how we value people, what, how we value investments. That fuels a lot of this. I don't know how to change those values, though you know, outside of myself. I think maybe that's the secret. Yeah. Well, you need an incredibly charismatic leader to take the values to you the just, people. No, you just change it in yourself. No more charismatic leaders. Yeah. No more um, looking to other people to solve our problems. Yeah. Anyways, the book is hype. <laughs> Gabrielle Bluestone. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. I always really enjoy our talks because they veer so much from, you know, what's going on in the news to, you know, the the psychological profile behind it. So I feel like we always go a lot of interesting places. We do. We'll have to do it again when you start your hype podcast. <laughs> You'll be my first <laughs> guest. Oh, thank you. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Lookup Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, For those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website 
or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.